For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right, kids ages three pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids with Mr. and Mrs. Bailey. Or at least Mr. Bailey until Mrs. Bailey gets off the stage. <laughs> Which will take a while, so she's running double duty. Give her a break. All right, the rest of you, uh, if you've got a Bible, grab it. Uh, turn it to Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament, chapter 9. If you don't own a Bible, that's cool. The passage is in your order of worship. Um, and, if, and if you don't own one, if you just didn't bring it with you, it's there for you. If, if you don't own one, there's a bunch on the back table we'd love to give you. Grab one of those on your way out. Or if you are really brave, you can go back and grab one now. Uh, but it's important to have it in, in front of you. So um, this is the third week of Advent. As is evidenced by three of those candles being lit, which means that we are that much closer to the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Um, And one of the things to remember about this, remember, I've I've said this the last couple weeks, that Advent isn't just a rearward looking uh, season. It's just not just a time for us to look back and think about, oh, isn't this great? Jesus was born. It's us leaning into the longings of those who awaited his first coming because we are awaiting his second and so every time, every, every candle that's lit is for us a reminder that we are that much closer to the return of Jesus. Right? And I said last week that one of the purposes of this season is that we can intentionally wrestle with the longings that we have. Longings that won't be fulfilled fully and finally until Jesus returns. And in fact, that faith is not a tool for us to get what we want Faith is, in fact, trusting that Jesus is the only one who actually can give us what we long for. Not a tool by which Jesus will give us what we long for. See how that works? But what do we do then when we sit in the reality of longings that scream at us to be fulfilled and a heart that seems to be intent on finding ways to answer those longings apart from God? What do we do in the intervening period? How is life supposed to look? What, what are we hoping in? What are we... What are we waiting for? And in a sense, that's what this passage is about. This passage we're about to read in Isaiah chapter 9. Because this is about the coming of the king. This is about what his rule will be like. And what kind of kingdom he will bring. And is a way of giving us hope. A way to lean into the hope in the midst of our desire to run and find help apart from God. So if you have your place in Isaiah 9, if you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading uh, verses 2 through 7. And hey, let me just give a, a little bit of a, I don't call it a warning, but maybe a reminder. If you've grown up in church, okay, this passage is as familiar to you as air. Okay? Even if you haven't grown up in church, but maybe you're like a music person, like you love music, this passage is going to be as familiar as air because it's part of one of the, the most popular parts of Handel's Messiah. But what that means is, is that there's a danger for us. There's a danger that we believe we already know what this means. We're not expecting a whole lot out of 
the reading of God's word. So I would want to invite us to remember that God's word is living, it is active, and it never fails to accomplish what God purposed for it. And so as you hear it read, remember that and add to that faith and love. This is God's word for us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and Forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, you are all of those things that we just said. And we are desperately in need of your rule. Some of us don't believe that. Some of us are are afraid of that. Some of us, even though we follow you, we are afraid of your rule in our lives, afraid that you will only come to torment us, to destroy us, not to flourish us, not to help us, not to love us. But if we're to believe the good things that you have for us, you will need to work in our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that now. By your spirit, would you come and would you work in our hearts Would you open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear from you, our hearts to receive you and to experience the love that you give to us? Would you use this time not just to convict us of our sin, but to help us reckon with and delight in the mercy of God that's found in you? And even from this time, would you let your rule of justice and righteousness spread, not just in this room, but throughout our city, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. It's funny, I, I, I was listening to the radio this morning. Um, it, I'm kind of a talk kind of person. Like, I don't know why, because I'm a musician, but for some reason, I just like to hear people talk. So uh, I was listening, and there's a caller who calls in, he's, and it, I think it was a pre-recorded show. They're talking about something from way back, and he starts, you can tell when he talks, he, he's an older gentleman, okay? Okay, he's an older gentleman. I'm being careful, Rick, be careful, okay? But he's an older gentleman, and he starts talking about the good old days, when all was right with the world, in the 50s and 60s, Right? And the young people today, and blah, blah, blah. And, and it seems to be like that seems to be popular to believe that, um, that young people today have an, a little bit of an, I don't know, a problem with authority. 
As if millennials created anti-authoritarianism, right? That millennials were the ones who invented being, having a problem with authority. As if we forget, like, the Brat Pack in the 80s and, and the, 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 the whole Woodstock gener- culture of the 70s. We forget everything that happened in the 60s. Forget how great a hero James Dean was in the 50s. Rebel without a cause. Like, thumbing our noses at authority isn't new. We have, a, as, a, as a people, as, as humans, we have a deep-seated suspicion of authority because, well, for, for good reasons. Because we've seen it used to selfish ends, haven't we? I know I have. I'm sure you have as well. But also, we have a deep-seated suspicion because we have a desire to be independent. But what if I were to be able to tell you that there was actually a rule, an authority, that actually worked for our flourishing instead of its own? What if I were to tell you that there was a rule, there was an actual ruler who would actually use all of his authority and power so that you can flourish instead of using you so that he could? What do you think that would be like? What if there was a rule that actually relieved us of burden instead of adding to it? That'd be pretty nice, wouldn't it? That's the vision that our passage this morning brings us. And so we're going to look at this in three ways, this very familiar text. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at this. We're going to look at the ruler of peace. No, sorry, we're going to look at the rule of peace. Then we're going to look at the ruler of peace. And then finally, we're going to look at the presence of peace, right? The, the rule of peace the ruler of peace, and then the presence of peace. And what we're going to see is this. That, uh, in fact, Advent is not just about the coming of a king. It's about the coming of a kingdom. Okay? So, let's, let's dig into this text. So, like last week, I want to give us a little historical context to help us. Um, and, and so, if you're a history guy or girl, like this is going to be great for you. If you're not... Just try and stay with me for a little bit, because prophecy, Isaiah is a prophet, and prophecy is not uttered in a vacuum, even though we want to sometimes pretend that it is, that it's some kind of ah-historical event, it's not tied to what's actually going on. Prophecy actually mattered to the people that first heard it. Didn't just speak to something that was so long far off that they wouldn't actually get it. And so let's think about this guy, Isaiah. Isaiah is another 8th century B.C. prophet. We heard about another one last week. We talked about Micah, right? If you were here, you remember us talking about Micah the prophet? They were contemporaries. They were, they were doing their thing at the same time. And so the time here is that Isaiah is saying these words is about 734 B.C. Okay? Here's what's going on. In the nation of Judah, remember, we talked about this again last week, Israel has been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in Judah, Judah had a king by the name of Ahaz. Okay? Ahaz, bad dude, not a good guy. Okay? He's a wicked king. He's sitting on the throne of Judah. And during his time, these are very small kingdoms as far as the world goes, but there's this one big kingdom that kind of is exerting its power and influence over all of them. It's named Assyria. Not Syria, Assyria, okay, with an A. And so, but the problem is, is that because they're tied up with other things at the time, it's kind of like when the cat's away, the mice will play. And so the cat is away, and two of the other kingdoms that it is uh, over, that it rules, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, without the A, are kind of feeling their oats. And they're thinking to themselves, what we're going to do is we're going to put together our own little 
coalition and we're going we're gonna to flex our muscles and we're going to cast off the rule of this bigger nation. And so what they've done is they've created this coalition and demanded that Judah and its king Ahaz join them or be conquered. Okay, with me so far? Okay, good. So Isaiah in chapter 7 has already given King Ahaz this famous, uh, these famous words of hope that these kingdoms, Syria and Israel, will fall in a short amount of time. Even though Ahaz is kind of set against trusting in God. And so what's going on with this people right now is they are, as a, as a whole people, feeling weak, feeling powerless, feeling small. And they're under the thumb of a faithless king who has been trying simply to save his own skin. So that's the, the place into which Isaiah is speaking. And so as he's speaking, God is painting a picture of a greater ruler whose reign will be unlike anything they've seen. Now let's look at that. Look down at verse 2. Isaiah presents the people as walking in darkness. In fact, he says they live under the shadow of death. So let's talk about darkness really quick. In the Bible, as in most things, darkness is not seen as good, right? I don't, I don't think you have to have a, a degree in in literature to kind of get the idea that when someone uses the image of darkness, it's probably a little ominous, okay? So darkness uh, is an image in the Bible of chaos, and the shadow of death is, is basically the thought of a hope, it's hopelessness against an unconquerable enemy. That makes sense, right? Who's the last person? Well, a lot of us in this room are Christians, so we know who the last person was who conquered death, but that was it, right? So, so we, we have one. Death is a rather unconquerable enemy, as we see it on our own. And, and so living in the shadow of that is to live in the hopelessness of that coming. And so what all this comes down to is living in the reality that something is coming that you can't stop. That you're in need of rescue. These are the people that Isaiah is talking about. Does it sound familiar? It's on these people that he says a light will dawn. Now, if darkness in the Bible and in general human culture is an image of chaos and bad things, light generally is the opposite, right? So light in the Bible is an image of order and hope. God and his presence in the Bible is often associated with light, And so these people who live in the shadow of a pending doom suddenly have a light dawn upon them. Now here's what we need to get from this right now. These folks who are in this darkness, in the shadow of death, didn't make the light appear. Nor did they kind of find a bunch of candles, hold it up, and kind of, they were just really exaggerating. Light has dawned in my candle. No, instead... This light has come upon them. Whatever's about to happen, they're going to be rather passive in it. It came from outside of them. This is a very poetic way of saying that that light, always associated with God, is acting on their behalf. God is acting, going to act on their behalf. All right? And that produces deliverance and joy. Look down at verses 3 to 5. Okay? There are two kinds of joy that they talk about here. The kind with harvest and the kind with dividing spoil. And there are not many of us in this room who can relate to either of those. One, there's maybe a couple who can relate to the harvest part, right? So let me explain what that means. Let's let's start with the spoil, okay? Spoil means the, the stuff that you divide after you've defeated your enemies. 
Okay, warfare during this time was like um, a common occurrence. So the idea of dividing plunder, dividing spoil was normal. And if you're dividing that plunder, dividing that spoil, think with me, it's because you didn't die, right? You didn't lose. That's a good thing. It's a great thing. You're really happy. You're really happy when that's going on. And harvest is similar because you're happy because you can't make those plants grow. If you're having a harvest in the first place, it's because it's happened. The plants have grown. You've, you've gotten a harvest. It's a great thing, especially if you're living in an agriculture agrarian society. Because if you don't get a good harvest, you can't just run to Kroger. You're going to die. Having a harvest, dividing plunder means I have lived. It is awesome. It's a time of great celebration. And the reason for that joy is given in uh, verse 4 and following. God, God has destroyed the yoke of the burden that was across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Now, the strange thing about this is that the identity of this oppressor is not given. That, that would be nice. Then we'd have at least have some kind of target to look at. There, there's no identity. It's the oppressor. So if you've, if you've been paying attention when I was talking about contacts, you, you may say, well, maybe they're talking about that big, that big nation, Assyria. Maybe. Uh, but Judah wasn't, in th- wasn't being threatened by Assyria at the time. So more likely, what's being talked about here is that this joy is, a, is produced not from just the elimination of an oppressor, but from the elimination of oppression. That oppression has ceased. And then look at verse 5. It's not just oppression, it's also war. That's what it means when it talks about boots. Boots and garments, that we're going to get rid of those. Look, again... Warfare in the ancient Near East was a yearly occurrence. I know that seems really weird. Like, it was like, it was as regular as Super Bowl. Like, oh, it's whatever date, time to go to war. And you just gather all your friends and you go out with the king and you go to war. It happened every year. If you're familiar with the Bible, think of, um, think of that infamous story of David and Bathsheba, right? Because it starts out with, in the time that kings went to war. There's a season for this. The season for warfare. It's just the way, because, you know, you don't want to fight when it's like bitter colds. You want to go when the weather's okay. It seems weird, but it's what would happen. So what is talked about here is this yearly occurrence, this thing that was as normal to you as the latest season season of your favorite show dropping. Like, oh, that happens on this date, and I'm ready for it. You would have been used to the fact that warfare was happening. Except this year it doesn't. And next, and next, and next. War has ended. The light that has dawned has brought joy that comes from getting rid of oppression and getting rid of war. But how, right? That's a great question. How? Because what we think is going to happen, if oppression and warfare is going to cease, is because someone who's more powerful than the bad guys is going to rise up and squish them. Right? Maybe not. The rule of peace is going to come, but the ruler of peace is going to be a little different than we thought. Look down at verse 6. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born. Now stop there. Why a child? I mean, you're like, well, Rick, he says born, so it's got to be a child. I I get that. But why, why not say a ruler will rise up? Why a child? Because this is a pretty unexpected turn. 
Especially if you're taking in context that previous images of shattering yokes and eliminating the rod of oppression. Like, think about what, what kind of images go through your head of someone like shattering a yoke of bondage. Like, yoke. We don't think about yoke. Chains. Breaking chains of slavery. And cracking the rod of the oppressor. That is the, the image of the rule of the most evil ruler you can think of. Who does that? Not Penelope Jane Flood. I can tell you that. Because she's a little baby. I got a picture on my phone. Like, she's tiny. But this is a ruler. A ruler? We're, we're talking about a baby doing this. How many babies do you think can actually accomplish that? So whatever God had planned, it's not going to look like what we expected. It's not going to look like a ruler with simply more power than the bad guys. It's not going to be the rising up of Superman over the world's Lex Luthor. Though that's probably what we generally imagine. God actually, when he talks about delivering on the promises of breaking the chains of slavery and the rod of oppression, he gives us an image of weakness. An image of weakness. So when we look at this picture of warfare ending and of oppression being shattered, we see a child peering back at us. And that child will have the government on his shoulders. Think about that for a second. In verse 4, which we already looked at, our burden is removed. Right? A yoke is something that actually does sit on the shoulders of whatever is carrying it. Our yoke is taken off, but the government is on his shoulders. Here he takes all of that burden on himself. And, and if, you're, if you're here and you're maybe not familiar with Christianity, um, but you're familiar with kind of generalized religious spirituality, that sounds really weird because what, what's just been said is that this one who is to come is going to take from us all of the burden that we feel, and he's going to put it on himself. He's going to take all of the things that kind of hold us down, he's going to take it on himself. And that's weird because that's not what religion is supposed to be, right? Because the default position for like all of us is, if there's some kind of religion and some kind of God, then what it's going to mean is we're going to work really hard for him and we'll get rewarded. But that's not what's going on here. And then we're given this famous string of names. Wonderful Counselor. That's the, the thought that this person has amazing wisdom and knowledge. They know what's going on. They can deal with things. Mighty God, meaning the one with God's strength. Everlasting Father, the meaning the, the king whose reign is forever. Prince of Peace. That's the one who brings fullness. Remember we talked about that last week? We talked about, if you were here, we, we talked about the fact that shalom, peace in the Bible, is not just the absence of something. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of fullness. It's the presence of what we were made for, what we were made to be. And this one, this, this child that's going to take our burden upon himself is going to be the prince of this peace. The one who brings all of our relationships with God and, and ourselves and each other and creation and lines them back up exactly as they were supposed to be so that we have fullness. That is what this child has the power to do. Now, that's the power of a child. Now let's look at where this originates. Look down at verse 7, the power of a promise. There will be no end to the increase of his government and peace. Now, I need you to listen close here for a second. If you've checked out, check back in. Because 
this is a hard one for us because we have heard, if, if, you've, if you're like over the age of, I don't know, say 20, you remember line after line of political promises that have never been fulfilled. We've been so jaded by the idea of the, the, uh, the inaugural address, the, the, the speech of saying all these great things we're going to do, the, the, the platforming that we go, yeah, whatever. Okay, just, just try not to make things worse. But what's talked about here is that this rule is not a passing thing. This rule of fullness, of, of shalom, of, of uh, the end of war and oppression is not just a blip on the radar. It's not just a pause in the normal order of things. It is, in fact, something that will fill the earth. And this kingdom, this government, will extend as far as that peace, that shalom, that fullness extends. And so that language of an endless kingdom... If you've been here the last couple of weeks, it should sound really familiar to you. Like if, if you've heard the other Advent sermons, it should sound really familiar to you. And it's made clearer as, as Isaiah talks about this child reigning on David's throne and over his kingdom. So what we have going on here, once again, is the working out of that promise we talked about two weeks ago. When we talked about God's promise to David. Here we are 200 years later. 200 years later in which we've had a bunch of faithless kings and God is still doing what he said he would do. He's still doing it in spite of Ahaz, in spite of all of these kings that just blew it over and over again. He's still going to bring about the kingdom that we were made for. And he calls that a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And those two words are insanely important. They are insanely important because we often think of God's purposes as either justice or righteousness. In other words, it's either personal piety and faithfulness to God or public piety and faithfulness to each other. Right? The former, the, the idea of personal piety and faithfulness to God, that's, that generally tends to be the more conservative option. right? And then the public piety, the, the more faithfulness to each other, the justice side of things tends to be the more what, what we end up labeling progressive or, or even liberal. But the kingdom that God will bring through David's descendant will be characterized by both. Both. One last thing to point out before we get to the presence of peace. This prophecy, this, this statement by Isaiah, this, this uh, declaration of hope begins and ends in the same way. Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. Remember at the beginning, it was the light that was dawning, not people creating light. The light was dawning upon them. The light was shining on them. And here, the zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish this. This vision is not the product of careful political maneuvering or a powerful military or even moral and spiritual effort. This will be accomplished because God promised to accomplish it. This will happen solely out of the zeal of the Lord. That word zeal, it, it, means, it means a passionate state of mind that actually drives one to action. Some of y'all are very passionate about things and you don't do anything about it, right? But I'm talking about zeal that actually drives us to action. Now listen, because this is great. This means 
that this vision of a world without warfare and oppression, that God is more passionate and committed to this than anyone else's. It will happen because he is committed to seeing it happen. Not because of our great programs, policies, procedures. Just as those in dark don't make the sun rise upon them, so also for this child to come, this rule to be known, the Lord has got to see it happen. Okay? Now, let's talk about the presence of peace. Because this is one of those passages in the Bible that can lead you in very disparate directions, depending on what you come to the table with. On the one hand, you can come to the table with the very true idea that the Bible teaches clearly, and it does, that our sin before God or, or our betrayal of Him, because remember, sin isn't breaking of rules, it's breaking of a relationship. It's, it's betraying a person, not a code. And so it, you, you could be thinking that, that our sin before God, our betrayal of Him, has broken us in the world. And if this child to come is to restore this peace, this fullness, He will have to deal with our, our quote-unquote real problem, which is sin. Okay? In other words... Uh, from this perspective, the claim of Advent is that the king who is coming came is coming to deal with our sin. That our real problem is ruptured relationship with God. Okay? We'll call this, um, we'll call this, this perspective the side of the cross. Okay? For the sake of argument. On the other hand, and that's some of y'all in this room. My guess would be probably a lot of you. But some of you are coming to this text with a very different thought. You can come to this with the reality that this passage very clearly says, and it does, that warfare is going to end. That oppression is going to cease. And that justice is going to be established. In other words, from this perspective, the claim of Advent is that this king who is coming is going to deal with evil in the world. He's going to deal not just with individual hearts, but with unjust systems. He's going to make the world right. That our problem is the oppression and injustice we do to each other. This side we'll call the the perspective of the kingdom. So which is it? Is Isaiah looking for a deliverer from injustice? In other words, someone to, to restore human relationships to what they were meant to be? Or from sin? Someone to restore relationship to God with, or, or with God to what it was meant to be? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Okay, listen to me. The Bible says that, that, that both the brokenness in human relationships, it says it, the brokenness that comes from human relationships stems from our brokenness in our relationship with God. That remember what fractured all of those relationships in the first place was our fracture with God. And that when that relationship was messed up, when we betrayed him, when we turned away from him, that everything went to pot. That everything messed up. In other words, injustice and evil and oppression happen because we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. It does say that. You with me? But at the same time, the Bible also says that if sin is dealt with, it will have real-world implications. 
That if our, our relationship to God is healed, then those things will start to come back together. Do not set the kingdom and the cross against each other. The true claim of this season, the true claim of Advent, is that our need for forgiveness, for restoration before God, has come in Jesus. That is true. Just as in creation, God got his hands dirty and he stuck them in the mud and he formed us out of the clay and breathed life into us. So in the same way, in, in redemption, God got his hands dirty by becoming part of his creation, taking to himself humanity. Jesus was born not just to die in our place for our sin, but also to live in our place to give us his record before God. He reconciles us to God, only him, and he does so by faith alone, okay? The cross is a real thing. Don't dump that perspective. At the same time, the claim of Advent is not simply the coming of our priest, the coming of our sacrifice, but it's the coming of our king who reigns now over the whole world, right? When we declare the Apostles' Creed, he rose again on the third day, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, we talked about that when we talked about the Apostles' Creed. That he, Jesus reigns right now. And if that is the case, then those structures, and I don't just mean Jesus reigns in this room. I mean over the planet. And if that is the case, then those structures that promote injustice, that promote sinful ways of being, systems of violence, oppression, racial injustice, dehumanization on all fronts, they are out of place and should be removed actively. Not just waiting for it to naturally happen. How many times have you seen evil just naturally go away? Jesus had to die for that. The kingdom cannot come apart from the cross. Because injustice and oppression and warfare are simply effects of our sin. But the cross seems awfully impotent if it doesn't actually have effect in the real world. Restored people acting like restored people in the world towards others would create this kingdom. They must go together. As is famous in marriage ceremonies, what God has joined us together, let's not let evangelicalism render asunder. Okay? Now that said, this tells us nothing about how this comes about. Because this is where this unique imagery is so important. Uh, Jews during Jesus' time were waiting for their Messiah to come. And their Messiah, they thought, would be like a baptized... Well, they wouldn't have thought baptized. We'll say pious. A pious version of Caesar. He's going to be like Caesar. Why? Because Caesar's powerful. He can exert his will on others. So what he's going to be when this Messiah comes is a king who can go and exert his will on evil and get it done, get rid of it, because he's going to be stronger than it is. And we fall into the same trap. Listen to me. We fall into the same trap. Whether it's wanting a politician who can be a bully for us, or we fall into it with Jesus, assuming that he's kind of like Superman. Can't really stop him. He's awesome. He just crushes people. But Isaiah doesn't give you Superman. Isaiah gives you a baby. 
How do you reconcile the image of a child with that of the mighty God? How can you have strength and vulnerability at the same time? Because trust me, you don't look down at a newborn baby and think, mighty God. That little thing is helpless and can do nothing on its own. How do you reconcile those images? That's exactly what Advent's about. This is exactly what Advent is about because this is what Jesus is about. Jesus did not come, listen to me, Jesus did not come to fight harder than evil. He came to absorb it. He came to climb on a cross and take all that it could bear, all that he could bear, all that it could dish out, and then rise again. The might of God that he showed was a strength of love to bear these things, to take all they could deal out and rise again. I know that some of us are, have really hoped that God would be the kind of God who rises up and just gets rid of evil, just washes it off the face of the planet. Do you realize that if Jesus had come to do that, what we would be? We would have been swept away with everything else. It would have been like the flood of Noah's day all over again. I don't know about you, I can't swim for 40 days. Right? Do you see that? We are part of the problem. G.K. Chesterton was right. That may be a legend, but I'm going to assume it's not. That when someone wrote in the paper and gave a challenge to send in essays on what's wrong with the world, he sent back two words. I am. We're part of the problem. But instead, when God sent His Son into the world, Jesus stood in our place. He bore the weight of the judgment of sin and the power of all the forces opposed to God, epitomized by death. He bore it all, and then He rose again. So here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Because, listen, we live in the valley. Most of us have heard that in some way, shape, or form. But here's the kicker that, if you're not familiar with Christianity, is probably new to you. The zeal of the Lord accomplished that too. Which means you and I had nothing to do with it. We don't achieve it. We are offered a place in the kingdom of God. We are offered a place in the, in the cross of Christ by faith and by faith alone. We don't achieve it, we receive it. It's not God coming, it, it, it's, it's not God coming to teach us how to get to Him. It's God coming to take us to Him. Now, one last thing. The reality is is that this church, because of our place in the evangelical tradition, which we unabashedly have a place in, proudly, in fact, but because of our place in that tradition, if we're going to fall off the horse on one side of the cross of the kingdom, we will probably fall off on the side of the cross. Right? That's where we fall. So I want to speak briefly to how this season should move us towards the other side. I said this before, I'm going to say it again. The New Testament is very clear. Jesus right now reigns over all creation. He reigns over all creation. Okay, And it is likewise clear that this kingdom, this this rule on earth as it is in heaven, is not yet fully realized here. And in fact, it won't be until Jesus comes again. Our role, some of you have heard me say this before, our role until the day when Jesus comes again is to anticipate that kingdom. Here's what I mean. We just had an election, right? After, after an election, when it, at least when there's a change in administration, the same thing always happens. 
The election happens in November. Inauguration's not till January. But in that intervening period, who gives two rips about the sitting president? Nobody. We even, it, it, or, if, or if it's a, a session of Congress, right? What do we call it? Two words. Lame duck. Lame duck. I don't, know if, I don't know if you've thought about images of strength and power. Lame duck is not one of them, right? So what are we doing in that intervening period? We are living into the, the reality that will come in January. We're right in it right now. No one is wondering what President Obama is doing. I have not heard a news snippet one about anything he's doing. For all I know, he's dusting portraits in the White House. I don't know. But I know every second of every minute of what the president-elect is doing. It's the same thing. We begin to live in anticipation, in light of a new governmental head. And the same is true here. As Christians, we have come to believe that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And if we have come to believe that, then we will live in light of his administration. Not in light of the current one. So what does that mean? If that kingdom is a kingdom where everyone seeks one another's flourishing, where we try and and see that other people's lives are made better and we pour ourselves out for one another, then it means doing that now. It means doing that now. It means seeking the flourishing of those around you. It means intentionally seeking to bless the margins of your community. It's going to mean soul care, absolutely, and health care. It's going to mean alleviation of spiritual poverty and material poverty. It's going to mean freedom from our bondage to sin and freedom from our bondage to unjust systems. And so the way that we seek to intentionally do this as a church, if you're new to Holy Cross, is through our three lanes. We call them the three lanes, the three different ways in which we intentionally seek the margins of our community. Because if you don't intentionally set out to reach the margins, you never will. We do that through, through the care of orphans and foster kids. We do that through seeking to bless our, the, the most under-resourced school in our community, Bessie Weller. And we do that through uh, caring for teen moms, through Young Lives and Generations Hope. So let me, let me tell you real quick, because you're like, I, don't, I don't, still don't know what that means. The Baileys, who are not in here right now because they're teaching Holy Cross kids. So you'll know when they come back in. Jason and Kylie would love, or, or Lynn and Jeremy, would love to talk to you about how you can help either foster kids or the families of those that are foster. All those presents on the back table is a great start. But let us not be confused into thinking that when we write a check or go to the store, the call is over. They'd love to talk to you about how you can help. My wife would love to talk to you about how you can help Bessie Weller. How you can go and help maybe read with kids who don't have anyone reading to them. You can go help support teachers who who have no support because everything around them is beating them down, telling them they... That they're not enough. And they're not. Not, not for what they're facing. And Priscilla Halterman, I guarantee you, would love to talk to you. She's sitting in the back looking all pregnant. She would love to talk to you 
and beautiful and beautiful. And she would love to talk to you about how you can help support teen moms and their babies. And on that last one, if you're a dude, because we talk about teen moms and their babies, but let me tell you something real quick. If you're a dude in here, a guy, let me, let me, a man, and you have a heart for teen dads, they would especially love to talk to you. They would especially love to talk to you. So here's what I want to say to, is to wrap us up. Please do not set these against each other. It is not an either or. It's not either the cross or the kingdom. They have to go together. So I want to say this uh, just in closing. This, the last verse of this prophecy has got to set the tone for anticipating and enacting the rule of, the, of our king here and now. Let me say clearly. We, you and I, do not bring the kingdom of God to earth. This is not a baptized version of some young man's utopian dream. We are not the ones that do this. This happens because of the zeal of the Lord Almighty. Does he do it through his people? Absolutely. He loves to do it through us. He is like, he is like the father who lets his kids help him with yard work. We come alongside. We're carrying the wood. You know, whatever. He loves to involve us. But it happens because of his zeal. God cares about his creation and he acts within it. He's not the deist God who set everything spinning and then leaves. He wants to see this kingdom come. He wants to see us restored to him and to each other. He passionately wants this, which is why he has done this in Jesus. He calls us to be a part of his work in the world, but it is a work of the Lord. It is born out of his grace and his love and will be completed only when Christ returns to set things fully to rights. That is what we long for with every subsequent candle being lit. Our King coming to make all things right again. Would you pray with me? Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on our indifference to problems. Have mercy on our indifference to the souls of those around us who don't know you. Have mercy to us uh, nodding and smiling politely when we see things that are wrong in the world instead of praying and acting to see those things come under the, the rule of Jesus. So Lord, as we, as we think about the rule of our King, would you let the gospel in this be driven deep into our hearts that this is not something, either the, the individual restoration to you or the work of those individuals in the world to see Christ's rule Uh, extended is not something we do. It is only by grace. It is only through faith. Give us grace to embrace that today. But also, Lord, empower us to go from this place as reconciled people seeking to see our city reconciled to one another, to you, and to itself. And Jesus, come quickly. Because we long to see our world made right. We long to see us made right. So come quickly, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.